you might find it helpful to turn to the front of your bulletin as we're going to refer to a couple of those quotes. One of which is by Philip Ryken, who is a fairly well-known pastor of a church in Philadelphia, and he is also the author of a commentary on Jeremiah. He did a series on Jeremiah, and then he just took his sermons and put them in a commentary. And it's been very helpful for me to read through those as we've done our series in Jeremiah. And when I got to chapter 45, he wrote this. If you are willing, if you are waiting to do some great thing, you may be wasting God's time. Most Christians will never do anything great. Let me read that and just let it sit with you for a moment. If you're waiting to do some great thing, you may be wasting God's time. Most Christians will never do anything great. How, how does that sit? My immediate reaction, and perhaps even my ongoing reaction this week, was to say, no way. Riken, you got it wrong. People are doing great things. I might be one of them. So I was yelling at him as I was reading this book. And then, typically, as you do when you think you're right and somebody else is wrong, you just mentally begin to build a case for yourself, don't you? Get in some kind of argument and, well, you got your case down in your head. And so I began building my case against Riken. Had a lot of backup. And then I started thinking, well, Paul, um, why, why are you struggling with the statement? I mean, what is it that about the statement that's sort of gotten underneath your skin? Why such a strong reaction? Is it possible, Paul, is it possible that your strong reaction actually indicates something else? <laughs> no, couldn't be that. I didn't really like the line of questioning that I was getting myself into here. Is it possible that your strong reaction, we've been talking about idolatry, and, and one of the, the x-ray questions, the diagnostic questions is, what do you have a really strong reaction to or against? And I was having one of these, and so diagnostically I was addressing myself. Ah, maybe I'm still not done dealing with idolatry, was my answer. I kept thinking I was. I mean, I've been talking about it for three weeks. I felt like I'd sort of wrestled it all down, and that was sort of over, and I was ready to move on, and I was ready to read about Baruch in chapter 45 and talk about spiritual friendship and the value of encouragement and having somebody by your side. I had, I had a good sermon working in my head before I really read the chapter. And so I thought about Riken's analysis of Baruch, 
And I felt like this drowning man gasping for one more breath of significance or one more breath of importance or one last breath of greatness like that was going to keep me alive. A bit more from Riken, he says this about Baruch. Baruch's rebuke is also for everyone who desires to do something great. Deep down, every believer has a heartfelt passion to do something for God. The great missionary statesman William Carey once preached a famous missionary sermon with the title, Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. What believer has not wanted to accept Carey's challenge and attempt something great for God? Yeah, I I like that. Generations after generations of believers have echoed the bold answer of Isaiah, who heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. At some time or other, every Christian wants to stand with the prophet in the presence of God and say, Here I am, I'll go anywhere, I'll suffer anything for the gospel. Yet there can be something very self-centered about that prayer. This, and this is where I really begin to dislike Riken personally and wished I hadn't helped pay for his children's education by buying his commentary. He says this, some Christians, and he could have just inserted my name here, think the important thing is not that God's will gets done, but they get to do it. They are happy for God to get the glory as long as they can share in some of the limelight. And then listen to this last phrase, how hard it is to attempt great things for God without attempting them also for self. Have you you ever felt, felt like you're in a sermon and the person never uses your name, but you just feel like they sure could. They've just been reading my story and giving it back to me, and I'm just hoping they don't use my name in the midst of what they're talking about. And Riken's analysis uncovered an idol for the pastor. And as we talked about last week in Colossians, Paul says of those idols, you have to put them to death. You have to squeeze the life out of these idols. They don't go easily. And so this week... God's little vice grip has been squeezing down on my own issues, namely the need for significance. So this morning, you're really just going to listen to a sermon that's directed to me. And if you get something out of it, it'll be a blessing, I hope. Um, It's been painful, but I want to look at it in these three ways. I want to just look at the first uh, few verses about Baruch's complaint verses 2 and 3, and then God has a response, verse 4 and 5, and then at the end of 5, he gives Baruch a reassurance, a complaint by Baruch, and then a response and reassurance by God. You remember that Baruch was the very faithful secretary to Jeremiah. If you remember back in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah was instructed by God to buy a field, which was a very unusual thing because Jerusalem was being overtaken by an enemy. And God says, Jeremiah, I want you to let these people know there's still going to be hope out in the future, so go buy a field today. 
And he signs this purchase deed and he gives it to Baruch, his faithful secretary, who then takes it and hides it for a later time. In chapter 36, Baruch was the one who wrote everything on a scroll. Remember that he had, Jeremiah sat down and he'd said all the things that he had said and, and Baruch is faithfully writing it on in these columns on a scroll. And then because Jeremiah was so unpopular as a preacher, he couldn't go to the temple. Who does he send? He sends Baruch. He says, Baruch, I know this isn't going to be super popular, but you go read what I wrote to the people at the temple. And so Baruch, after writing it down, takes it to the temple and reads the information. Who Then some people take the scroll to the king, and they say at the same time, Baruch, we've got to hide you and Jeremiah. Because as soon as we start reading this information to the king, and it's against the king, he's going to find you and Jeremiah, he's going to lop your heads off. And so in chapter 36, verse 19... We read about uh, Baruch being hidden. And you remember what happened with the, the scroll? Remember that? The, the, the king unrolls the scroll or the, the reader unrolls the scroll and then the guy pulls, the king pulls out this real sharp knife and then just takes a strip of it and cuts it off and puts it in this fire pot and he just burns the whole scroll up. After that, the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were in the first scroll. So guess who gets the assignment again? Baruch. This was not something that took, you know, a few hours at a computer. This was something that took weeks and months to get back into its original form. And so when we come to chapter 45, chronologically, it really follows chapter 36. And when we look at 45 verse 2, we see Baruch is complaining. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said. Now let's just stop there and just take a sobering account that I don't know if Jeremiah heard Baruch's complaining I don't know if anybody else heard Baruch's complaining, but who do we know heard Baruch's complaining? The Lord heard Baruch's complaining. Because he's saying, Baruch, I've been paying attention. Even if nobody else has been listening to your whining, I've been paying attention. And like a great listener, God says, now this is what I've heard. Let me make sure this is actually what you've been saying. This is a great listening technique. Somebody says something, and then before you give an answer, you say, let me make sure this is exactly what you've been saying. Woe is me. Now, now notice, notice the center of gravity right off in the first statement. In Baruch's complaining, the center of gravity is located in himself. Woe is me. And then look at his, look at his pattern. The Lord has added. Okay, so who's going to get the blame for the complaining? Who's at the center of gravity for Baruch? Me. And who's causing this problem? The Lord. And what is the problem? My pain. I am weary. My groaning. I find no rest. Now, before we're too hard on Baruch, 
to be sure, he had a great deal to complain about. The words of the scroll, as I said, have been written on, burned, and now he's been given the exercise to rewrite them. So he's in some kind of mental pain, frustration, that maybe he's just been doing something that's been wasting his time. He understands from reading the scroll itself that disaster is going to fall on Jerusalem. His own people are going to experience all kinds of disaster. And so he's in an emotional pain that his friends, his family are in, are in real danger. And many of them are going to be threatened with their very lives. And finally, he's in some kind of physical pain. His, his own life is being threatened. And so he has a lot of things to be frustrated and complaining about. And finally, we know from verse 5 that Baruch is also a man with great ambition. He was seeking great things. If you do some background investigation on Baruch, you discover that he came from a very prominent family. He had a grandfather who was a governor or a mayor of some kind, some leading official in Jerusalem. And so he and his brother, at least one brother, grow up with this idea that, you know, this is how, this is who we are. This is how we operate. We're one of the, the leading families in the city. And so his brother uh, grows up and becomes a very high-ranking official in King Zedekiah's court. And so at some point, with Baruch's expectations and ambition, early on he attaches himself to Jeremiah. Do you remember Jeremiah is called as a young man, and probably not too long after that, Baruch comes along beside of him, and Baruch thinks, yes, I'm attaching myself to this guy. This guy seems to be the real deal. He's really speaking the words of the Lord, and I, and I want to be his partner in ministry. And for a little while, if you remember, King Josiah came in and he's the one who found the, the words in the law in the temple itself and all kinds of reformations were taking place. And, and at this point in Judah, a great revival is happening and Baruch must have thought, man, I've hitched my wagon to the right train. I mean, I'm going to be and I'm living in the middle of what God is doing. This is so exciting. But then Josiah, prematurely for his age, he dies in a battle. And then his sons take over the kingdom after that. And each one begins to take the people back to this idolatrous state that they'd been living in before Josiah. And so all of the things that Baruch had hoped for sort of living in this idyllic world of this is how the nation's going to turn out. I can, I can just see it on the horizon. This is how my career is going to go. go. I'm right in the right path. I can see I'm heading right down the right path. This is how my family is going to work out. I can see it all coming together. He has all these ideals that he thought were going to happen, and then they crumble. In a matter of just a few years. Baruch is a man who lives with shattered dreams and unmet spiritual expectations. 
And I don't know if you've ever lived in that place. But that's a very difficult place to live. Everything looked like it was lining up just right. And then something happens. Information comes your way. An event happens. And then all these expectations you have just just melt right in front of you. And that's where Baruch was. He's looking to the Lord, not in disbelief of his existence. He's just looking at the Lord and saying this. It wasn't supposed to turn out this way. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? You've been a person who's done the right thing. You've even taken really great risks. You feel like you're following after what the Lord wants you to do. But every time you you go back to Him, you just get nothing. Nothing's working out like it should. Some of you live with shattered dreams of what your nation should be like, or your family, or your career, or your church, or your ministry. You are seeking something and you're just getting something else. And you're at a point in your life that it just doesn't look like it's going to turn around like Baruch was. Now, if Baruch had come to you and you knew that background, because obviously God knows the background for Baruch, and you're the counselor, what would be your, what would be your thought? What, what, what would you say to Baruch? I mean, would you be sympathetic? I mean, would you tell Baruch, man, you, I think you're in need for some vacation time. You just need to sort of get away. Would you say that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life? I mean, what, what kind of information would you be giving to Baruch at this point? Well, he comes complaining to the Lord. And the Lord, like a great physician, zeroes in on what really needs to be said to Baruch. Now, this isn't necessarily what you'd have to say to everyone, but let's look at what the Lord says to Baruch. Verses 4 and 5. Behold, big word in the Old and New Testament. It's a wake up. It's, it's pay attention. If you've been sitting out there sort of just drifting off, God comes in and says, wake up. I've got some information for you, Baruch. I want you to be holding something. You, you be beholding something else. You need to get your vision off of one thing and put it onto my vision. And notice how God immediately moves the center of gravity. When Baruch was complaining, I'm worn out, I'm tired, I'm not getting the things that I want. I have ambition, I have expectations, and they're just not turning out. And God comes in and immediately moves the center of gravity by saying this, What I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. Translation, Baruch It's not about you. 
The whole world is not revolving around you. You've got the wrong center of gravity. You're not looking at me. You're so focused down on yourself like everything has to work out your way. I've got this great big plan, Baruch. And it's really about my plan, not your plan. It's really about my ambitions, not your ambitions. It's really about my expectations, not your expectations. So let's make sure we're looking in the right direction. I mean, what if you went and you got this kind of counseling? You'd be reluctant to go back, would you not? I need a little softer hand. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, what's the chief end of man? What's the answer? To glorify God. You see, he's the center of gravity for everything. And much of our complaining moves that center of gravity away from him and to ourselves. And the best way to address that is to move your thinking off of yourself onto God. Not necessarily getting all the answers you have inside, but saying, I'm looking at the answer for everything. I'm, I'm getting my eyes off this situation and I'm trusting in someone else to really be the answer. And what Baruch discovers is that functionally, at some level, he's really serving God for his own greatness. You see, he's not getting greatness. See, it's when he didn't get greatness that he found out what he was really serving. I am using God to foster my desire for significance. Boy, that can happen. And the closer you get to Christian leadership, especially behind the pulpit, the more enticing that becomes. And you can quickly discover that you have an idol. Baruch's complaining at some level exposes that he's really serving God for his own end. And how close this gets to the New Testament with the disciples. It happens a number of times, but you might remember Jesus takes his disciples off for this little one-on-twelve, this private little lesson. And he gets the disciples together and says, guys, you know, you don't know this yet, but I'm going to tell you this. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. I am going to be put to death. And this was totally mind-blowing to the disciples. This wasn't what they had anticipated. And so after the little lesson, they begin to walk back into town. And Jesus somehow gets ahead of them, and all 12 of them them in this little knot. And remember what they're arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? Which one of us is going to be the greatest? 
You see the picture? They're following after Jesus, but are they following for Jesus? No. They're following after Jesus for themselves. They don't even see that they have this idol that they've totally circled themselves around. I'm really here to serve the Lord for myself. I'm really following after Christ so He'll do what I want Him to do. And I wonder how closely that hits to our own heart. I could see this leak out in many different ways. I thought about it in this one way. I get a magazine. I don't remember. It comes every month or maybe it comes every week. It's a Christian college magazine. And since I have two teenagers and I'm a pastor, I qualify for getting on their mailing list. And maybe some of you, you get it if you have a high school student. And basically it's a magazine that's an ad for Christian colleges. And occasionally, every five or six pages, they insert an article. But mostly it's just ads for Christian colleges. And I don't pay much attention to it other than sort of flipping through it. And I just started flipping through and looking at sort of the logo, or maybe I should say the, the tagline for the Christian colleges. You know, what's, what's the little banner tagline that you go, okay, I want to look down and maybe get a website. Here were a few of them. Educate your ambition. Lives of significance. Let us equip you for a life of impact. Believe in you. Impact the church, the world, and the future. Now, before you write me a nasty email, I understand that these probably are pretty good schools. But, but I want you to be aware that even flipping through a Christian college magazine and reading as an 18-year-old that if you come to this school, you can impact the whole nation. You can be impacting the whole church. And I don't want to deny what God might possibly do with any one of us here. But I do want you, I'll alert you to the fact that these kinds of taglines mean you're going to have to wrestle with whose greatness are you really after? Are you really after God's greatness or are you really after your own greatness? You see, being after God's greatness doesn't necessarily make really great taglines. Become last in your class. I mean, that's just not, you know, that's not one of, whoa, get that website. That's just not one of those things that perks up your ears and attention. And so we just have to be aware at every level how this might be playing out. Played out so many times in my own ministry with high school students in young life. I had, in 15 years, I had a number, as you might imagine, a number of low points in ministry. And low points typically in my life bring a pretty good load of complaining. And so in young life, you go to the high school 
and you try to intersect the lives of 14 to 18-year-old students. And you go onto the campus and you intentionally try to break into a conversation with an 18-year-old or a 15-year-old and you've never even met this person. And you're trying to just sort of get into their little circle and get to know them and you're trying to love them as, you, as you're watching them. You're, you're down on the corner at New Hanover High School and eight or nine kids are trying to, to, to steal a little smoke before the, the, you know, the teacher comes around the corner. And you're trying to sit there and not inhale and trying to love these people. And you pray for them and you make a big plan and you prepare for everything. And then you have this club event where it's at somebody's house or some, some building that you've rented out and you, you do all this preparation. And two people come. I mean, that, that happened to me. Two people. On my way home, I drive down College Road and the Moravian Church, I think it's, uh, the cross is still there. They used to have a cross that was lit up on the outside of their building. And when I had a club experience like this, I'd make sure I'd stop by the old cross for a little conversation, one-on-one with the Lord. Because I'd be so discouraged, and I would sit there, and this is kind of an edited version of the kind of conversation I would have. God, what are you doing I mean, come on! And because God is a good listener, not audibly, but I felt certain he was saying this. Paul, what are you doing? I mean, I want to make sure you know what it is you're doing. Oh, but I was ready. I mean, I had my six-shooter all packed up, and I said, well, God, I can tell you what I've been doing, buddy. I've been going out to the high school and busting my backside for you. You remember the smoking group down there that I'm not trying to inhale? That's what I've been doing. I've been trying to find places to meet, rent out places to meet, make a plan. I've got a whole list of things that I've been doing. And he would say something like this. Would you have stopped by if a hundred kids had come tonight? See, that's the problem when you get in these conversations. You're going to lose. You know you're going to lose. Paul, what are you doing? Let's get back to the real question. What are you doing? And sometimes, you know, if you get in an argument and you feel like you're not going to win, you just leave. So I'd walk away. But if I stayed, I would say... I am seeking greatness for myself. That's that's what I'm doing. You see, I've got an idol God. I've got a functional God. And you're, you're not helping it work out. And he would say, I know. I, I'm putting it to death for you on nights like tonight. I'm, I'm squeezing the life out of something that you think is going to give you life, and it's never going to give you life.
And so I think in this church, we've got Young Life staff, we've got university staff, we've got Campus Crusade staff. We've got people who volunteer for those ministries. You've got to wrestle that one down. You've got to really hear from the Lord the same question. What are you doing? Are you pursuing your own greatness? Is that what it's about? Or is it really about me? And if you're a high school student, or if you're a college student, and you're going off and you're thinking, man, I'm going I'm to conquer the world. I'm going to get into a mission in, in Africa, and I'm going to make sure that continent's different by the time I leave it. Because that's what you tend to think of when you're 18, 19, 20. It's the same question. What are you doing? Are you really doing something for me? Or are you pursuing your own greatness and you're just using me? Jesus says in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, every Christian wants to live in the shadow of this cross, do we not? I do. I, I really want the grace and mercy of this cross. I am so happy to live in the shadow of this cross. I am not fooled that I can somehow get there on my own. The question is, are you willing to live in the shadow of your own cross? You have to be put to death as well. And you have to live in that shadow and say, I no longer live. I have taken up this cross. What cross? My own death. And I have to live in the shadow of that now. So that I'm serving God, not for me, but really for Him. Baruch gets a reorientation. Center of gravity changes. It was very much like Job, if you're familiar with the book. Job has legitimate complaints. I don't think Baruch's were illegitimate. They just ended up being self-focused. And God doesn't give him a lot of answers. He just gives him himself. Which is the answer. And so... God reminds Baruch in verse 5, judgment is coming on the whole land, but Baruch is going to be spared. Baruch, a judgment's coming. I'm bringing it. But I'm going to save you. You hear the gospel? A real judgment's going to come on this whole land. But because of Christ, I, I've got you. 
You don't have to worry about that. And once Baruch really got a picture of God's salvation, then he wasn't as worried about great things for himself. Riken got back on my good side later in his chapter. And I want to close with what he says. Everyone who believes in Jesus has the same assurance Baruch had. God has promised to do great things for us. He has given us the guarantee of eternal life. 1 John 5, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is where we find our true significance. Not in doing something great for ourselves, or even something great for God, but it is in what God has done for us. Once we understand we are nothing more than sinners saved by grace, we no longer seek great things for ourselves. We are content to glorify God in the little things of life. Let's pray. Lord, this may have just been a 30-minute exercise to remind me of what you've been working on in my life. And if that's all it was, I want to thank you for these people to pay attention to a sermon delivered to the deliverer. But I suspect at some level we wrestle with this. And wherever anyone may be, I pray that you bring clarity. You bring real conviction. That that you would zero in just on the place that needs help, needs assistance, needs perhaps even to be put to death. In Jesus' name, amen.